Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 17. That's 1 John 4, 17. While you're turning there, I want to start with a little story. So uh, I have an irrational fear of flying. Okay, we all, all of us have these irrational fears. We have normal fears, right, that, that normal people have. And then we have irrational fears, fears that uh, we shouldn't really be afraid of. And one of those fears for me is flying. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm no coward. I still fly from time to time. I fly internationally. I do these other things because it's 2020 and I'm a grown man. But I hate doing it because when I was a little kid, I had a horrendous experience on an airplane, okay? Now, if you say, Zach, I've been on some flights with some, uh, some turbulence. No, no, you don't understand. People were hitting the ceiling and the flight attendants were laying down in the floor. One was grabbing my dad's leg and screaming, hang on, Okay. That was my first flight as a little kid. And if something hits you when you're a little kid, it has a tendency to produce a phobia. If you get attacked by a dog when you're a kid, you might be afraid of dogs for a while, whatever it may be. So I was uh, talking to a guy here at Parkway who's a pilot. We actually have two pilots that I know of here. And they both have twin brothers, which is really weird. So if you're a pilot and you're at Parkway, there's a 100% chance you have a twin. And uh, I was talking to one of these guys after a service, and he said he was a pilot, and I said, you've got to help me get over my fear of flying. And he said, let's do it. Let's do it. And so he took me down to this uh, training facility that his, uh, his airline has, and so we drive down to Dallas, and this training facility is half a billion dollars. I mean, it is incredible. Each of the flight simulators, so if you think flight simulation, don't think we sat in front of a computer and played a video game. These flight simulators are $13 million a piece, and they take the inside of a 737 and they put it in the simulator. It's 3D, it's, there's virtual reality, it moves. It is exactly like flying a real plane, okay? You can add snow, you can add storms, you can take off from Vegas, you can take off from Orlando. They're just clicking the buttons and my world is changing as they're doing this, okay? These flight simulators are so realistic. One, I got airsick on the ground. <laughs> and two, I almost had a panic attack. Like, I'm flying. They, they let me fly so I could kind of understand how the plane works. And I'm thinking, we're going to crash. We are going to crash. We can't crash. We're on the ground. But I'm thinking, if we hit those clouds ahead, we are literally all, me and these two, we're dead. We're dead. It will be my fault. I will have crashed a simulator, okay? And so uh, this guy and another uh, pilot, both of whom are Christians, were very gracious because they gave me so much time. They let me sit down with them before we got into the simulator, and they let me ask questions for an hour and a half. They explained how planes work, they explained how turbulence works, different air currents and all that stuff, and then they let me ask all my ridiculous questions, okay? Because my, my view is take something to its extreme, and then if I can defend against that, then I'm not freaked out as much. So I would ask questions like this, okay, what if we're in the air and both engines completely cut out and all the power cuts out? Then what happens? And they're like, well, we just glide down into a safe landing, all right? Like just because the engine goes out on a boat, the boat doesn't sink. Uh, same way in an airplane. You're, it wants to float. It wants to float on the air. And I'm like, this is very helpful information. The thing I'm most afraid of isn't a thing, okay? I'm like, well, what happens? You tell me this, you hot shots, old maverick and goose. Tell me this. <laughs> tell me this. What if we get struck by lightning? And they said, oh, we've both been struck by lightning multiple times. You're not grounded, so everything's fine. Very helpful information. What happens if you suck up a bird into the engine? Will you die? No, actually, I've sucked up a bird into the engine. I was like, oh, we trained for this. I just took it back around and we landed. The other guy said one time he was landing in Austin and there, an entire family of bats started hitting the plane, went into the engine, blew it out. 
and they just landed totally fine, totally safe. I'm like, okay, okay, let me think what else, what else? What if we go through turbulence and the wings just snap off? And they're like, that's not a thing. That planes aren't made of Legos. That's not a thing. They don't just snap off. Okay, well, what if the landing gear doesn't go down? Oh, we just land on the belly of the plane and everything's fine. All this is extremely helpful information. In my mind, it's like a 50-50 shot every time you get on an airplane. You like flip a coin, you're like, all right, this is the death one, okay? But if that were the case, people wouldn't do it. And so finding out all this information is so, so, so tremendously helpful. What I found out is really the only way you're going to get hurt as far as an airplane crash is one, a terrorist attack, which you can't do much about that. I love the TSA people, right? So as you're complaining because you have to take your shoes off, I like not exploding. So I like the TSA people. The other one is if you were to lose power in both engines right at takeoff, or ride at landing, it's not that you just crash. It's not that you spiral down like in the movies. It's just that you don't have enough time to get to another runway. So you have to land in a field or you have to land on a road. And even then when they do that, when it's a technical crash, most people still don't die at all. And so here's what I learned from that experience. Two really, really helpful things. One is the importance of truth that knowledge is power, that we reshape our minds, our minds are transformed as we learn truth. The other thing I learned about this was this, that I realized that most of my fears were false. I was afraid of things that don't even happen and some of them can't happen. That's tremendously helpful, tremendously helpful. Now here's why I tell you this. This text this morning is going to deal with a particular fear and it's gonna be a fear of condemnation. It's gonna be a fear of judgment. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna work through this text and if you're a Christian, you're going to see that maybe your greatest fear is not even something that's a reality for you. It's not even something that applies to you. So am I fully over my fear of flying? No, but do I feel a lot more confident? Am I a lot more encouraged? Absolutely. And I'm hoping that this text does the same thing for you when it comes to death, when it comes to judgment, or whatever else you might fear. Let's pray, and then we'll get into verse 17. Almighty God, we confess that there is no God but you, that you are Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and have always been so. Would you bless us as we uh, study this word? We confess that this is your word, that it is given by you, and so we ask for your help, that you'd guide us and be with us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Verse 17 says this, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Let's look at the first part of this. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. A few things I want to say about the first part of verse 17. First of all, what does the this refer to? It says, by this is love perfected. What is that this referring to? It's referring to abiding in God. It goes back to verse 16, and even before that, back to verse 12. Let me read it to you. 1 John 4, 16, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John 4, 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's what it's saying just as a summary. By our residing in love, we are being perfected by God's love. By our residing in love, we are being perfected by God's love. Let me break this down. This sounds a little technical and so I'm gonna unpack it. Constantly in 1 John, we see this phrase that occurs, love being perfected perfect love or love being perfected. What does that mean and why does John keep using it? Well, it means several different things. For example, when you hear about perfect love in 1 John 2, 5, it's a reference to the fact that we should obey God, that love produces holiness and produces righteousness. In 1 John 4, 12, perfect love means that we love others. But here it means this, 
that we can face the day of judgment without fear. That we can face the day of judgment without fear. Here's what this first part of this text is saying. If you're a Christian, you're someone who abides in God, you should not have a fear of death, judgment, or hell. If you're a Christian, you should not have a fear of death, judgment, or hell. 1 John 2, 28. John's already said something like this. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Okay? So let me address what this text is saying. I want to address both non-Christians and Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you're just here checking us out. You're just here because your spouse made you come. You're just kind of dating Jesus. Please hear what I have to say. Okay? The Bible teaches and Christians have universally held throughout 2,000 years that there will be a day of judgment. Everyone in here will give an account to God, okay? That's going to happen. It's not an if, it's a when. I think a lot of people aren't Christians think, well, I know I'm gonna die, but I don't really wanna think about it. Maybe it'll just go away if I ignore it. Don't ignore it. Have a memento mori, have a reminder of death. Remember that death is coming, you are going to die, you will give an account before God, and if you don't know Jesus, you will go to hell forever. Hell is real, hell is scary, it is absolutely terrifying. It is eternal, conscious torment. You don't cease to exist, you don't get a second chance, you don't get to change your mind, You never get used to the pain. You never become numb to it. I swear to you, a God who's infinite can hurt you in ways like you cannot even imagine. That is a reality. But it doesn't have to be the case for you. You're not supposed to like hell. It's supposed to be offensive. It's supposed to be the most terrifying thing you can think of. That's what happens when you offend an infinite God, infinite punishment. But Christ offers you, if you're not a Christian, he offers you a full pardon not only for past sins you've done, but present and future sins, that you can be forgiven. You don't have to go to hell. That's good news. Well, Zach, what do I have to do? Do I have to get better? I've lived a pretty bad life. No. Do I have to change my desires? No. You just come to Christ and he will do the stuff. He will save you. He will forgive you. He is the one even giving you faith to come to him. And you don't have to have judgment, okay? Now, let me address the Christians in the room, which are probably most of us. If you are someone who's a Christian, here's what you need to hear. Hell is not a reality for you at all. It's real, it's just not real for you. People will go there, it's just not you. Your debt has been paid, you are forgiven. There is no more judgment that God has for you. God has no wrath for you, it's been poured out on the cross. Is that not good? Because here's the idea. You know what double jeopardy is? You ever heard that in a legal setting? Right? So if I'm, let's say I'm convicted, I'm tried for some crime, I'm convicted of it, and I go serve my sentence, I can't go and have to serve another sentence and be retried for the exact same crime. Maybe something new comes up and it's a different thing, but I can't be punished twice for the same thing. Your punishment has already been poured out on Christ, and so there is none left for you. We have a tendency to think that when we get saved, we're just forgiven for past actions. I'm saying, no, 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 all your punishment. When, di- when Jesus died for you, all your sins were future, and he has died for all of those sins and made atonement, there is no more wrath for you. You've already been forgiven. This is part of the symbolism of baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. It is a symbol of Christ who does save you. And what do you see in baptism? You see death and judgment. Maybe you've noticed that uh, our baptistry here at Parkway is shaped like a coffin. It's shaped like a casket. It's shaped like a sarcophagus. That isn't because we're like weirdly morbid 
We didn't buy it from the Halloween store. We didn't have some angry teen in our youth get it from Hot Topic or Spencer's or something like this in the mall. The reason that it's shaped like a coffin is because multiple times the Bible refers to baptism as death. You die to your old self and you have new life in Christ. That's the idea. How do you know you're not going to be under God's condemning judgment because you've already done the judgment process in becoming a Christian? That is the imagery of baptism. You go down into the judgmental waters and you come back out on the other side because of Christ. You've already acted out judgment day if you're a Christian. You've already acted it out. That's what it is. It is a, uh, a play that you put on about the gospel and so you have no fear of judgment or hell. Now, if you're saying, okay, Zach, that sounds great, but if I'm being honest, I'm still a little bit afraid to die. I'm still a little bit afraid that I might not be a Christian. I'm still a little bit afraid of judgment. I'm still a little bit afraid of hell. Look at me. Me too. Me too. If I'm being honest with you, I've been a pastor for a while. I've been a Christian even longer than that. There are still places in my heart where I'm afraid to die, where I'm afraid of judgment, where I'm afraid of hell. But that's not because I'm right. It's because my faith hasn't caught up to my theology yet. I know biblically that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But still in my mind, there's this wrestle that I have. So if that's you, know that that's okay. Part of the purpose of this text is to increase our faith. It's to strengthen our faith. Things can be true about you theologically, even though your heart doesn't always fully believe those things. Now let's look at the second part of this, uh, this verse 17. It says something really weird. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Look at this last phrase. <clears throat> because as he is, so also are we in the world. What a weird way to talk, Okay. What does that mean by saying that you are like Jesus? Let's talk about what it does and doesn't mean. First of all, it does not mean that you are like Jesus by deity, okay? Jesus is the only son of God. He has always been God. He has always been the son of God, okay? You will never be divine. You will never be God. You are just a human. You're made out of the dirt, and that's all you will ever be. We're humans that God loves. We're these special animals, but that's it. There's an infinite gap between you and God, okay? Jesus is the eternal son of God. When it calls Jesus the son of God, it's by nature. When it calls us sons and daughters of, daughters of God, it's by adoption. It's not something we actually are ontologically in our being. It's something that God reckons us as part of his family, even though we're just these creatures made out of the dirt. So what does it mean, this last sentence, to say that we're like Jesus? Because as he, that's Jesus, is, so also are we in the world. Here's what it means. I'm gonna read it twice. It means that in the same way that Jesus loved others in his earthly ministry, so you should walk in love and thus evidence that you're saved and have no need to fear judgment. Let me read that again. It means that in the same way that Jesus loved others in his earthly ministry, so you should walk in love and thus evidence that you are saved and have no need to fear judgment, okay? That's the idea. Does your life look like Christ? Because he's vindicated and you're in him, you're vindicated as well. That's the idea, okay? That is the idea. One of the marks that John wants to point out is that there's a, there's a way that we can have confidence in our faith if we simply love one another. There's a way we can have confidence in our faith by loving one another. So if I'm doubting my faith, if I'm doubting whether or not I'm saved, not only can I know Christ saved me, I can also see whether or not there's this desire in my heart, even a tiny bit, not always, but sometimes, to love others, okay? To love others. Let me say it this way. I was having a conversation with somebody recently and they told me an interesting factoid and it was this that psychopaths are typically immune to contagious yawning, okay? 
You know how you, somebody yawns and then you kind of see them yawn and you didn't have to yawn until you saw them yawn and so then you yawn? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Supposedly psychopaths are so insensitive. They so lack empathy for other people that people can be yawning all around them and they don't yawn because they're just thinking of themselves. They're not thinking of other people. So if I do something like this, I see a few of you yawn. The rest are the psychopaths, you see, that didn't didn't do it. The idea is that we are to be the opposite of that, that we are to so love each other, that we empathize, we have a warm regard for one another, we care for one another, and that is meant to be an encouragement to us in our faith. Let me say it another way. In Jesus' earthly ministry, is he afraid of falling under the wrath of God for his own sin? No, he'll take our sin on the cross, but he and the Father are doing great. Amen? Amen. The idea is this. In the same way that Jesus has no need to fear condemnation, you, if you're a Christian, are in Christ, and therefore you have no need to fear condemnation. That's what the text is saying. That's what it means to be like him in the world. Okay? I'll give you an example. I love Jared Lawson. He is our pastoral resident. And uh, he's just a great guy. He's funny, he's smart, he cares about the Bible, he has a great personality, etc. And he and his wife, Claudia, just had a little baby. His name is Harvey. And this baby is the chubbiest baby you've ever seen. He looks like baby John Goodman, something like that, okay? He is, he's just, he's so chunky. He looks like somebody filled a pillowcase with mashed potatoes. You can't even, he's just enormous. He literally... By the way, I'm not making fun of the baby. When you say a baby is chubby, that's a compliment. When you say an adult is, it changes, okay? But this baby is so big, he can't use a pacifier. His cheeks block the edges of the pacifier, and he can't get it fully in his mouth, okay? So I see this baby, and I love him. His arms look like Olive Garden breadsticks, okay? He's just just chunky, okay? I don't tickle him because I'm afraid he'll absorb me like Eglon and Ehud's sword in the Old Testament, that he'll just envelop me, okay? But I love Harvey. And here's what's interesting. I don't know what his personality is going to be. I don't think he likes me back. He's scared of me because I have a beard and his dad doesn't. And so he thinks I'm some sort of animal or something. But I have already set my love on Harvey because he is linked to Jared. He is in the realm of Jared. And because I already love Jared, as soon as Jared and Claudia said they were pregnant, I was thinking, I don't care what that baby's like. I'm still going to love that baby because he belongs to Jared. Yes, he's adorable. Yes, he's chubby. Yes, you can put him in different size containers and he'll take the shape of that container. He's like a liquid. So if you put him in a box for just a few minutes, you can have a little square baby. It's easy to move him around. Yes, he's chubby and, and adorable. But the reason that I love him is because he is in the realm of Jared, somebody that I'm already in relationship with, okay? That's the way God sees us. God's love for us is not based on how well we do. It's not based on how well we love him back. It's based on the fact that we're in Christ. We're a shoe-in because Christ is a shoe-in. That's the idea. That's the idea here of this text. Look at verse 18. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and underline verse 18 because this is a really, really important verse for his argument here. And I'm gonna spend a lot of time on it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's talk about this. Okay, a few clarifiers. First of all, this is not saying that fear of God in the reverential sense is bad. 
When the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not talking about being under his dread and terror because of condemnation. It's talking about you realize this is an infinite Trinitarian being and he's in charge. We always will have a sense of the fear of God in that we respect and honor and love him, okay? This is also not saying that all types of fears are sinful. There's normal fears, just awarenesses to keep you alive, like you're in the ocean and you start to see fins in the water and you realize there's a shark, or you're walking down the street in Chicago at night down an alley, there should be a normal sense of fear. What this is going to be specifically talking about is a fear of condemnation. It talks about a fear of punishment, talking about divine punishment. It references back to verse 17 that talks about a fear of judgment. But I think you can also apply some of the things that are being said here for irrational fears, for fears that own you, fears that overwhelm you, okay? So let me explain. Let me give you a quick theology of how fear works. We become afraid of things for one of two reasons. We either don't believe that God is sovereign or we don't believe that he is loving, okay? We either don't believe he's sovereign or we don't believe he's good. Now, in a room that's Calvinistic, like this room, at a church that's more reformed, like Parkway, I think most of us would agree that God is sovereign. He controls everything, even the wills of men, okay? So I think our problem is we fall into fear, especially fear of condemnation, because we don't actually believe that God loves us. We would say he does, like if we were taking a theology test, we don't want to fail, we would say he loves us, but we don't really feel like he loves us. So here's what happens. When we're afraid of something, maybe you're afraid of uh, your kids dying, your spouse cheating on you, maybe you're afraid of getting cancer, maybe you're afraid, like me, of flying, maybe you're afraid of whatever it is, instead of dealing with those fears, instead of preaching to those fears the love of God, what we do is we first try to avoid the fear. We just don't ever want to deal with it. If we're afraid of sharks, we don't go in the ocean. If we're afraid of storms, we're checking our weather app a thousand times a day. If we're afraid of our kids being hurt, we never let them hang out with anybody. We just helicopter mom them to death. Whatever it is, because we're afraid of something, instead of confronting that with the love of God, we try to avoid that fear. And then when we're forced to confront it, because God will make us confront it, someone else will make us confront it, then we well up with hatred. We get mad at God, we get mad at other people because we didn't want to have to deal with this fear. A lot of us as humans would rather take a little bit of pain over our lives instead of having one moment of pain and then actually having healing and freedom. So we have to then confront this fear and we become furious. God, how dare you? How dare you take my kids from me? God, how dare you? I told you, God, this is the one thing that you weren't allowed to touch. We start to get angry and it leads to all this chaos. It leads to all this suffering, okay? And there's an easy way to remember what I just said and it's by quoting the great theologian Yoda. That fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. That's kind of the idea. Okay, that's kind of the idea. Now, here's what this text is going to do. It's going to say, if you have a fear problem, it's because you have a lack of knowing God's love and forgiveness and atonement for you problem. That's the idea. The way that you get over those fears is not by staying away from what's fearful. It's by staying close to a God who loves you even though you go through difficult times. Another thing I want to mention here. Verse 18, I want to read it again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let me get on a soapbox for a second. Giving people fear of condemnation is not how you motivate them towards holiness, according to this text, okay? So especially hear me if you grew up in church. Church people are the worst. I'm a church person, but we were taught a lot of bad things growing up. We have a lot of bad spiritual muscle memory, a lot of bad training scars, okay? And what we were told growing up is that God loves you and you're forgiven, but 
if you mess up too much, you might go to hell. But if you struggle too much with sin, maybe you're not really a Christian and maybe you'll go to hell. And what we think is that we think we need to give people a little bit of fear of condemnation to produce holiness. That's what we think. That's what a lot of us were told growing up. God loves you, ellipses, dot, dot, dot. But if you mess up too much, you might go to hell. Still be a little bit afraid of God's wrath. That's what we have been telling people for years and it is completely unbiblical. Fear doesn't produce holiness. You know what produces holiness? Grace does. Let me read you a little excerpt from a blog at Parkway that we've not put out yet. So you get a little, a little trailer, a little sneak preview today about this idea. Let me read it to you. Whenever you talk about the free gift of unmerited grace, there are those who get uncomfortable. There are those who always want to pull the reins on grace. That is actual legalism. Notice, by the way, that a legalist is not just somebody who thinks they can earn salvation. It's somebody who thinks that the rules keep you from sinning, okay? They think that if you just tell people they're forgiven and that they don't have to do anything and that they cannot lose their salvation, then those people will run headlong into sin. The legalist thinks that you can't tell people grace is too free or too unconditional or too forgiving or else people won't walk in holiness. Listen to this next part. The legalist assumes that you have to give people fear because they won't obey God out of sheer love. Think about that for a second. The legalist thinks that you need to be a little bit afraid of God's wrath despite the fact that Christ took all of God's wrath for you and the Bible teaches that, quote, perfect love casts out fear. Though the gospel would say, you're forgiven, end of statement. The legalist would prefer to say, you're forgiven if you dot, dot, dot. Or you're forgiven as long as you dot, dot, dot. Or you are forgiven but dot, dot, dot. But that takes away the goodness of the gospel. Grace is dangerous. Grace is scandalous. It makes you look like you might not actually be a good little Christian boy or girl, and that is a good thing, okay? Fear of God's wrath does not produce holiness. Grace produces holiness. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're at a wedding, okay? And the groom is up there with his bride-to-be, and he takes her face in his hands, And he looks her right in the eyes and he says to her, I will not divorce you unless you're a bad wife and you're a bad mom and you don't always keep me happy and you don't satisfy me. And he gives all these other conditions. Are those conditions going to make her a good wife? They're going to make her a worse wife. She's going to be crushed under the weight of his impossible commands. Never displease you. Always be a good wife. If those are the requirements for your love, might as well not even do this because that's an impossible standard. I can't meet it. You see those conditions, those, that fear does not produce holiness. It makes you want to throw in the towel and just do whatever sins you wanted to do anyway. Now imagine a different scenario where the husband, the groom, takes his wife's face and his hands and he looks her right in the eyes and instead he says this, I will not divorce you no matter what you do. You can cheat on me, I'm gonna stay married to you. You can be a terrible wife, I'm gonna stay married to you. You can be a terrible mom, I'm gonna stay married to you. I love you and my love is not dependent upon your performance. That woman is so humbled, she's so overwhelmed by the grace of her husband, she'll be a better wife, not a worse one. She doesn't hear that and think, great, I can cheat. She hears that and thinks, if he loves me that much, I want to do all these other things. You see, it's actually legalism. It's actually fear that produces sin. It's grace that produces holiness. That's how you're fueled in godliness. It is by grace. Let me say it another way. 
the reason we give rules in our society is different than the reason the Bible gives rules, okay? The reason I give rules to my kids is to keep them from evil. I say, don't hit your sister and don't whine and don't talk back, and I give them these rules to help restrain their evil. The reason that we have rules in society, we have civil government and laws, is to restrain evil. The reason you drive the speed limit in addition to not wanting to offend God, is because you also don't want a ticket. You, the, the laws in our society and in our home help evil decrease. It helps rein it in. Now look at me. This is really important, this theological point I'm making. That is not how God's word works. Paul says multiple times in the New Testament that God did not give his rules to keep us from sin, but to make us worse, to make sin more sinful, that the transgression might increase. So you need to see this. The reason we give rules is to keep the evil at bay. The reason God gives rules is so that you will fail so that you, need, you, need a, so that you know you need a savior. God's rules are so that you'll fail, not so you'll crush it. So you will fail so that you will run to a savior so that God will get all the glory. God's purpose in giving us rules in the Bible is the opposite of how we give rules to our kids and rules in society, okay? If you don't believe me, let me show you how impossible God's commands are. Let me read a uh, little quote from the Council of Trent, okay? The Council of Trent was called in response to Martin Luther, right, and the reformers, and here's what the Council of Trent is going to say. Wait, my notes are out of order here. Hold on, I'm going to tell you what it's going to say, and now I'm going to tell you what it's going to say. Here it is. If anyone says that the commandments of God are impossible to obey, look at this next part, even for one justified and constituted in grace, let him be damned. That's the Catholic position. If you think that because you have the Spirit, you can actually follow all of God's commands, that's Roman Catholic. That's not Protestant. The Protestant view is even though you have the Spirit, God's commands are impossible. Some of them you can do. I've never done meth. Amen. I'm so holy, okay? Other, other commands are impossible. If you don't believe me, let me just remind you of a few. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now, you'll say this. You'll say, well, Zach, that isn't written to us. That's written to the rich young ruler, a guy who likes money too much. Like us, right? Well, Zach, he's not saying he literally has to sell everything. He just has to be willing to sell it, really. So if that guy goes back to Jesus and says, actually, I'm not going to sell everything, but I'm willing to. Can I be your follower? You think that would work? No, you know what we do? Because that command is too hard, we reinterpret it to a command that we can actually follow, which is give some money to the church, and then we act like we've crushed it. It's a command that we have a tendency to ignore because it's too hard. Or how about this one? Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. Who's just crushing that all the time? Because before you raise your hand, remember that the book of James will say that no one can tame the tongue. That if you can tame your tongue, you're a perfect man. So if you're a perfect person, you can raise your hand. If not, then we're all letting unwholesome things come out of our mouth. Notice it doesn't just say don't curse. Nothing unwholesome should come out of our mouth. How about this one? Think of others as more important than yourself. Now, we, we reinterpret that. We say, okay, what that command really means is I'm going to mainly think of myself, and if there's something extra, then I'll care for other people. That's not the command. The command is to think of others, not just your family. That's an easy one. To think of others as more important than you. Are most of your thoughts on others being better than you, more important than you? Most of your thoughts are on spending time helping others? Do you buy a new car and give that away and you keep the old car or do you switch it? Do you buy a new house and give that away and you keep the old one? No, we have a tendency to think of ourselves first, not others. This is an impossible command to consistently keep. 
To even look at someone with lust is to commit heart-level adultery. So everyone in here, male and female, is an adulterer and an adulteress. How about this command? Be anxious for nothing. Every time you've been nervous, upset, anxious, fearful, worried about your health, your kids' health, your job, finances, coronavirus, uh, weapons of mass destruction, whatever it is, we break this command all the time. How about this one? This is a command we don't even realize is a command. Thou shalt not covet. How are we doing on that one? I don't even know how a society functions without coveting. You kind of need it for capitalism to work or for socialism to work because you want other people's stuff. Right? Coveting is one of these commands that we have a tendency just to ignore, but like the Apostle Paul says, as soon as our heart reads that commands, it wants to rebel against it. We want a bigger house and a nicer car, and we want other things. We're not content ever. We've been taught not to be content, and so we just ignore this command. And in case I haven't gotten you in those commands, let me remind you of this command. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a command. Every time you're not being as holy as God, you are walking in sin. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, or strength. Not sometimes, all the time, consistently, 24-7. God's law crushes us so that we might run to Christ. It crushes us so that we might run to grace. Now, here's why I say this. If you are afraid of dying, you are afraid of judgment, you are afraid of hell, you will not feel better by trying to do better because you're still running to you. You're still running to these impossible commands, okay? So what happens is some people might say, okay, Zach, you're right. I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to leave, and I'm going to love other people, and I'm going to love God. How do you know that you're doing it well enough? How do you know you're loving God well enough? How do you know you're loving other people well enough? Eternity's at stake. What I would tell you to do is this. I say all of that simply to say this. The way you will find that you can finally rest from a fear of punishment, a fear of condemnation, and a fear of hell is by resting in Christ and in Christ alone. God's love is the solution to your fear. It's not avoiding the fear. It's not you trying to do better. It is confronting that fear and staring it in its ugly face and reminding it that the God of the universe loves you a whole lot. The God of the universe loves you a lot. The love of God is the solution to your fear. Before going on to verse 19, let me read you something helpful in just a second. This is going to be a quote, and don't put it up yet, but this is going to be a quote from John Calvin. And uh, what Calvin is going to do is, he, in this section in the Institutes, he's talking about the providence and the love of God. And what he's going to say is, you can't get away from fears. There's too many of them. If your life is all trying to not be anxious and trying not to be fearful, there's too many things to be afraid of. No matter where you go, there's something to freak out about. And what Calvin is going to say is, he's going to say, your only solution is the loving providence of God. It's a long quote, but it's worth reading. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> Now, wherever you turn, all things around you not only are hardly to be trusted, but almost openly menace and seem to threaten immediate death. Embark on a ship, you are one step away from death. Mount a horse, if one foot slips, your life is imperiled. Go through the city streets and you are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. If there's a weapon in your hand or a friend's, harm awaits. All the fierce animals you see are armed for your destruction. Now, you might think to yourself, I'll just wall myself up so that nothing can hurt me. Calvin will deal with that too. But if you try to shut uh, yourself up in a walled garden, seemingly delightful, there a serpent sometimes lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, at night even to collapse upon you. Your field, since it is exposed to hail, frost, drought, and other calamities, threatens you with barrenness and hence famine. 
I pass over poisonings, ambushes, robberies, open violence, which in part besiege us at home and part dog us abroad. Amid these tribulations, must not man be most miserable? Since but half alive in life, he weakly draws his anxious and languid breath as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. You will not walk in freedom by trying to avoid things that are scary. They're all around. When it's cancer, it's inside of you. You can't get away from these things. The way that you avoid that type of fear and especially the fear of judgment is by knowing the overwhelming love that God has for you. Not based on how you feel, but based on his word. God's not a liar and he's promised that he loves you in Christ. Let's look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If you've got your Bible, you can write down the word others by that word uh, love at the beginning, okay? This is a reference to we love others because he first loved us. We know this because the context is going to go on to talk about loving your brother. So what he's saying is that we love other people because God first loved us. So here's how the flow of love works, okay? God loves you first. Again, this is why I'm reformed. No, there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. When God looks ahead in the future and sees who's gonna choose him, the answer is nobody because nobody wants to, Okay? So God must take the initiative. God must be the one that saves. What God does is he sets his love on you. When you're at your worst, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we're God's enemies, when we're not doing well, that's when God sets his love on us. And so what he does is he just sets his love on us. That's step one, okay? Step two, because we've been overwhelmed for the, by the love of God, is that we love God back. That's step two. Step three is that we then love other people. It must flow in that order. You can't short circuit the process. We are like a curved mirror, like a shield, and God's love shines down on us, and we reflect it back to God, and we reflect it out to other people, but it has to go in that order. If you say, I want to love God more, you can't. That's step two. You have to first be loved by God. If you say, I want to love other people more, you can't. That's step three. You have to be loved by God first and heal that vertical relationship before you can heal that horizontal relationship. That is the way that it must go. So I say all of that to say this. If you want to grow in loving God, you want to grow in loving others, you have to do the second part of verse 19 and know that he first loved us. That's the point. That's the point. Okay, listen. I want you to grow in holiness. I want you to grow in love of God. I want you to grow in loving other people. But you don't grow in those things by trying to do those things. You grow in those things by focusing on God's love for you. So I want you to be sanctified. I'm just saying most of you are going about it the complete wrong way. Can I give you a shooting illustration that's also a metaphor for the gospel? Okay, good. I heard a few people say yes. They're from Texas. Everybody from California clammed up because I said shooting. Okay. When I am teaching students how to shoot, well, this is true with handguns and stuff. I'll just use a rifle as an example. When I'm teaching students to shoot and they're using iron sights, I'm trying to get them to line up three things with their dominant eye, okay? So if their eye is a laser pointer, I'm wanting that laser pointer to line up three things. Their rear sight, their back aperture, their front sight post, and the target. So you've got your rear sights, your front sights, and the target. Those all have to be in a perfect line so that you will hit your target. You with me? Okay. Now, once they get all those three lined up, rear aperture, front sight post, and target, your eye can only focus on one distance at a time. Did you know this? We'll do a little experiment. Everyone hold out your finger and look at your finger and notice how I become blurry. Now look at me and notice how your finger becomes blurry. Do you see how your eye can only focus on one distance at a time? 
It's why you have to tap on your phone to take a picture to focus on different distances. Well, your eye can only focus on one distance at a time, but there's three distances. There's the rear sight, the front sight, and the target. Now, what do you think? Listen to this next part with this metaphor. What do you think that most new shooters have a tendency to focus on? The target. Why? Because they want to see how they're doing. But that's not what you focus on to be a good shooter, okay? What you focus on is the front sight post. You have a blurry rear aperture, you have a blurry target, and you have a crystal clear front sight post, okay? The goal is holiness. That's the target. The target is loving God. The target is loving others. But you don't hit the target by focusing on the target. You hit the target by focusing on the love of God in Christ, which is the front sight post. Jesus is the front sight post in this analogy. It's by focusing on the fact that you are loved because Christ has come and he has, while remaining God, become a man and he's lived the life you should have lived and he's died for your sins on the cross and he has been resurrected and therefore you can be reconciled to God and you don't have to earn it. That's what you focus on. The tendency for new students is always to focus on the target because they want to see how they're doing and our tendency is to focus on the target because we want to see how we're doing. But if we would stop doing that and we would focus on the gospel, we would focus on Christ, we would focus on the love of God, we would actually find that we were hitting the target much more often. You see, I want you to grow in sanctification. You just don't do that by focusing on sanctification. And that's what we've all been told growing up. Focus on how you're doing. Focus on how you're doing. Focus on how you're doing. I'm telling you, let that target become blurry so you can put all your focus on a crystal clear front sight post being Jesus. Welcome to Parkway where we train you both theologically and tactically. There you go, okay? So I say all that, and I want to summarize kind of what we've been going over. Uh, I want to read 1 John 4, 17 through 19 again, but I want to read it out of the New Living Translation, which is not a, a great version for serious study, but it's not a bad version. It just does a really good job of summarizing up verses 17 through 19. So let's do this, and then I'll pray, and we will celebrate communion. 1 John 4, 17 through 19 says this, and as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Verse 19, we love each other because he loved us first. Let's pray as the men serving communion come to the, for come to the front. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I confess that I typically don't believe that you love me first. I believe that you'll love me when I'm better. I believe that you love me when I have less doubts. I believe that you love me when I have less fears. And that is the opposite of what this text says. It is your love that causes us to not be afraid. It's not that we have to stop being afraid before you love us. Would you help us believe that? I pray for those who, like me, struggle with anxiety, struggle with fear, struggle with depression, struggle with these kind of things. I pray that they might know that you love them regardless of how they feel. I hope that the feelings come, but if the feelings never come, I pray that they might know that they are loved because you're good and because you love Christ, that your love for them is not based on them. Would you help us? It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.